Hello and welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the best of Glasgow Caledonian University's research and how it benefits people and communities locally, nationally and around the world. My name is Craig Telfer and today I am delighted to be joined by an academic who focuses on gender and alcohol and who heads up the university's substance use and misuse research group. Professor Carol Emsley, thank you very much for appearing on today's show. I'm delighted to be here, Craig. We'll start with quite a broad question, Carol. How would you describe your field of research? My field of research um, focuses very much on alcohol, mainly in the general population. But what I'm particularly interested in is looking at men, women and alcohol. And this really comes from my interest in the past in gender and health more generally. Not so much the biological differences about men and women, but the way men and women are defined by society. The different expectations of men and women and how that affects their behaviour and the way they want to present themselves in everyday life. Why is it important that we have detailed research about gender and alcohol? First of all, just to give you a bit of background about alcohol. So alcohol consumption in Britain doubled between 1960 and 2002 and that was very much because of an increase in availability, mm-hmm. price becoming cheaper and marketing by the alcohol industry. And so suddenly in the kind of mid-2000s, research came on the horizon that showed that while alcohol-related deaths in other European countries were decreasing, they were going up in England and Wales, but they were absolutely going through the roof in Scotland. It was, the graph was described as like the north face of the Eiger. It was so steep. And that really brought it to public health communities' attention in Scotland and eventually to government attention. And this has really sort of brought in the new measures that we have in Scotland and this real big attention in Scotland on alcohol. Where does the spike come from? Why is it unique to Scotland? Well, it was, it was rising in Britain as a whole. Right. So it's very much the, the, the alcohol-related harm is very much related to alcohol consumption and that is driven by societal level factors. So how cheap alcohol is, how available it is, how heavily it's marketed. It's difficult to tell why this was happening so much in Scotland. I think there's a little bit of a myth that we've always drunk more mm-hmm. than England, that we're a very sociable country, that it, you know everyone's always bringing out alcohol, having a dram to welcome people. But actually, this is a relatively recent phenomenon. We haven't always drunk more than, than England. Various theories focus on levels of poverty and deprivation in Scotland. We used to think that alcohol-related harm is very much concentrated in more deprived areas in Scotland and we used to think that's simply because deprived people drank more. We know that that's not the full story now. We know that poverty amplifies the harm that's Mm -hmm. done by alcohol. So if you're in poor housing, if you've got poor mental health, if you've got lots of adverse life effects, that's going to amplify the harm that alcohol causes. There's also various theories about how deindustrialisation in Scotland during the Thatcher era really increased harm in Scotland, particularly around diseases of misery, so drug deaths, alcohol deaths and suicides. But nobody knows for sure. What about the gender aspect of it then? Yeah, yeah. well I think that the gender aspect is really interesting for a number of different reasons. First of all, despite what you might see in the media, men are still drinking much more than women in Scotland. Their death rates are twice as high as women's. And they're three times more likely to be hospitalised or in hospital for reasons to do with alcohol. And so these these trends are really interesting. So while there's a, a convergence, while there's a reduction in the gap in the harm that alcohol causes among men and women, still very much there. It's still very much a problem 
among men. And while we don't want to neglect women, mm-hmm. I think we need to kind of right the balance there a little yeah. bit. So some of the research that we've done, for example, looking at how alcohol and drinking is betrayed in the media yeah. shows that it's very much focuses on young women drinking in public places. A lot of the text and newspapers is around women being scantily dressed, being vulnerable, being in a state of disarray. Mm. And this doesn't reflect reality. Yeah. Well, why is that the case then? Why is there more focus on women's mm. drinking in the media than there is men's? Well, I think you'd ask, ask journalists about that. <laughs> I would imagine the answer would be that that's what sells newspapers. And, you know, other researchers have said that young women are the public face of binge drinking. And that's that's what we see in the newspapers. Yeah, we've seen the image of the bench girl, image of sort of young woman that's passed out on the, the, the bench. I mean, how did, big a role do the media have in perpetuating these stereotypes? It's definitely part. It's definitely part of it. If people are looking at the papers every day or looking online, you know, we looked at um, online media as well, and seeing binge drinking associated with young women's public drinking and seeing these pictures as well, I mm-hmm. think, even if you're just flicking through something and you're seeing these pictures over and over again, there's that reinforcement that it's a young woman's problem. And the worry about this, of course, is that older drinkers, and we know that older people in Scotland are the ones that are, you know, there's a higher proportion of them drinking in a hazardous way mm-hmm. than lots of other age groups. So they would tend to think, well, it's not my problem. And also it locates the problem very much in the public sphere. So it's young people in on, a night out, yeah. on a night out. It's not to do with what we're drinking at home. Is there a disparity then between yeah. young people binge drinking and older people binge drinking? There's differences between the measures that we use. So what I would be talking about here was hazardous drinking. Mm-hmm. So that's partly to do with how often you drink and partly to do with how much you drink and also partly to do with questions around have you regretted how much you drunk are people worried about you so it's a maybe it's a more holistic measure and when it comes to measures like that yeah people in their 20s are, are a good proportion of them are hazardous drinkers but then it's also those in their 50s and their 60s that are continuing to drink quite a lot of alcohol as well do they see that as a problem no i don't think they do we've done some research in the past I was very interested in this age group of people in their 30s and 40s because there's a lot of research done in students because, again, oh, well, Mm -hmm. you know, it's these young people. Um, There's a little bit of research done on much older people because of worries about medication interacting Mm -hmm. with alcohol. But there was was really this real gap, the idea that, you know, we don't need to worry about people's drinking in their 30s and 40s. And so our research, one of our research projects did focus on this group and a lot of people had this quite a lot of chat, quite a lot of discussion about, oh, well, I'm older and wiser now, I yeah. don't drink in that way. But actually, when you drill down into that, it wasn't quite as straightforward as that. And though they very much moved their drinking, so they talked about, well, you know, you've got to worry about your family commitments and you've got to think about your work commitments. But there's still lots and lots of drinking going on, perhaps in slightly different ways for the men and women. And again, kind of coming back to my interest in men and women with the men it was very much seen in scotland as if you want to get to know someone you go for a pint in the pub with them if you see an old friend you go for the pint in the pub it was a very much a kind of default position Mm -hmm. but more than this it was seen as kind of an act of friendship so you would go to the pub you would buy rounds you wouldn't just be doing you know a, a kind of selfish buying your own wee drink it was seen as very communal you're standing your round you're drinking with your friends so 
this was seen as very important, perhaps not surprisingly. But I think what was more surprising was that the men in our groups, and what we were doing with talking to them about alcohol, it was they, they themselves who then started to talk about mental health and seeing how this was a problem for men in Scotland and how some of them, if they were worried a friend wasn't doing so well or a friend had got divorced or split up with their partner, they would say to them, come to the pub, meet some people. So it was a way of kind of showing care and also a way, as many people will know, of being able to talk perhaps about more difficult issues in the pub when you've had a few drinks, kind of breaking that ice and a kind of way of oiling the wheels of communication. I suppose that's a, a good thing that alcohol does. Is that a good thing that alcohol does then can bring men together? I think it's, it's, it's complex. So from a health point of view, I don't think there's really much argument that we can say alcohol's good for our health anymore. Mm-hmm. In the past, it was a little bit, oh, maybe it's good for heart health, but now the fact that it's related to cancer. So I think we can part that argument. It's not good for our health. So while alcohol is a really big public health problem, it's also important to look at the purpose it serves in our society. You can't just go to people and say to them, drink less, because what we need to do is explore how alcohol is so integral to our everyday life. So it's important for celebrations, it's important for special occasions, but it's also very much woven into catching up with friends, sociability, oh, I've had a hard day, I'm going to have a drink, time out. So it serves all these different functions and unless we actually talk to people about the functions that serve and try to understand that, it's difficult to intervene. With your research, eh, what do you learn from that? How can we apply that to everyday life? Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting with with the work on men, what we would be trying to do with that is go, well, there's this huge sense of camaraderie and togetherness and caring for each other. Is there a way that you can apply that in different ways? And um, I think some of the some of the ways we can apply that knowledge is that it's obviously very important to men that sense of friendship that sense of camaraderie so how can you harness that in different ways than through alcohol so what different projects have tried to do for example is to harness that through and there's a study at Glasgow University called football fans and training so what they've tried to do is to use football grounds and men who support a team to come and do healthier exercise Mm -hmm. we've tried to apply here at Glasgow Caledonian with other colleagues, we've tried to apply those lessons to a text message intervention where we've been texting men about their drinking but trying to do it in a, in a humorous and a non-nagging way and trying to sort of reproduce some of the banter that the men had within mm-hmm. the discussion groups we did with them to try and kind of look at their drinking. We've got a character within it called Dave who talks about his drinking, talks about his friends drinking to try and get the guys to see how Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Don't give up, apply different messages. So I think there's, there's lots we can take from our research um, to try and apply it. We've spoken about men's drinking mm-hmm. there, but what about women's drinking? Mm-hmm. If men sort of use uh, going to the pub for a couple of pints mm-hmm. as, a, as a social function, mm-hmm. what about women's drinking? Is there anything you can say about that? Yeah, yeah well, we talked to women in their 30s and 40s as well, and there were some similarities with mm-hmm. men, absolutely. But what the women tended to talk about, which was quite interesting, was alcohol more as time out from the rigours of the day. So whether it was their working life, whether it was looking after children, whether it was balancing both, there's a real sense of, right, draw a line under that, take a breath, this is me time, I'm going to have a glass of wine. I don't need to leave the house, you know, you don't need to, if you've got kids you're not worrying about childcare, so it's a way of, for them to relax. 
And they did this in different ways. So, for example, they would do it with partners. So women talked about having a bit of civilised time. So you could still be in your house, but you'd be with your partner, you'd open a bottle of wine, have a discussion, actually talk to each other. So that kind of demarcation between wrangling small children and having a civilised discussion. And then women also talked about going out with their friends and in a way alcohol almost transforming them back to their youth when they didn't have all the responsibilities of being in their 30s and 40s and work life and home life. And some of them even talked about drinking drinks they enjoyed as young people and kind of transporting themselves back. And the whole, you know, you don't get out much. So a lot of them said, oh, well, I'm out to the death. If I'm out, I'm out to the death. I'm out to the end of the night. I'm going to drink a lot. I'm going to really enjoy myself. I'm going to let my hair down. So interesting. In 2018, you were involved in the Don't Pink My Drink campaign. Um, can you tell me about that? Sure. Well, that's um, still going at the moment. It was launched at the end of last year. And we've had some great support from Monica Lennon, MSP, and from organisations in the US and Australia. And what we're trying to do, I talked at the beginning about some of the really important drivers of drinking being around availability, price and marketing. And what we're trying to do here is really highlight the way that alcohol is marketed Mm -hmm. to women. I said in the past it used to be very much alcohol drunk on special occasions. Now there's a real normalisation of alcohol, and by that I mean it's seen as appropriate really for any occasion. And in the past where people might have offered each other a cup of tea or coffee, it's more usual to offer people, particularly in the evenings, a glass of wine. Mm -hmm. And I think the alcohol companies are very much uh, marketing their product in this way. So hashtag don't pick my drink focuses on examples of this. So for example, around Valentine's Day, we looked at all the Valentine's cards aimed at women that, that focused on alcohol. Mother's Day, absolutely the same. And we've got figures out recently that have shown huge, huge increase in artisan gins and huge peaks in sales just before Mother's Day. Right. Very much marketed for this um, occasion. The same, even Pancake Day can be sold around alcohol. International Women's Day. Yeah, I read your conversation article yeah. about that and the drinks companies are using feminine versions of the products. There was a Johnny Walker, Brewdog with their Punk for Girls IPA. Right. Is that a problem that these companies right. are doing that? I think it's, it's a very interesting development. They obviously see women as a really important market here. As you say, there's the female-orientated versions. I think what is worrying is that in countries where women traditionally haven't drunk, so some of the African countries... Mm-hmm big multinational alcohol companies are starting to produce drinks specifically targeted at these populations. And again, we're, we're moving towards marketing that we saw by tobacco companies, the way that they link their products in the 60s with women's empowerment. You've come a long way, baby, by Virginia Slim being the most memorable example. That's very much happening with alcohol in our country, but particularly, I would say, in African countries and emerging markets which have less regulation around marketing and around price and availability. We're talking about drinks promoted Mm. at women. How are they different to how they're promoted to men? We know a bit about how drinks are promoted to men, very much around camaraderie, what brings the men together, around sport, around music and events um, like that. If you look at the marketing around events such as football or the Six Nations for rugby, um, that's very much marketing um, towards men. 
It's very interesting in Scotland at the moment, actually, in the, the football, the big championships are all sponsored by alcohol brands and by gambling brands. But in contrast, the women's football in Scotland has made a, a kind of ethical decision to say, we're absolutely not going to go down that road. We don't think that the families that come and see us, the young girls that follow our game, should be subjected to marketing from alcohol companies and gambling. So it's a really interesting divergence here. And it'd be interesting to see what happens. We're seeing the drinks companies put a lot of emphasis on how much they they care about their customers and how much they should drink responsibility. Do they really care? Or is it at the end of the day, it's all about money and their bottom line? I think it's problematic when the alcohol companies very much say, focus on drinking responsibly because their line is very much about oh, it's just, a f- it's just a minority in the population, it's just a, a troubled few that are drinking irresponsibly. But actually, we know that in, in Scotland, for example, that about a quarter of adults drink at hazardous levels. So it's not, it's not a tiny minority here. A quarter is a proportion that we should be concerned about. So I think it's a bit disingenuous the way that alcohol companies frame this. We know, for example, that going back to International Women's Day, Diageo, which is one of the biggest multinational um, alcohol companies, is a sponsor of International Women's Day, um, really arguing that they want to support women in their organisation and and women more generally. But I think it's hard to square this with trying to create more alcohol markets and try to promote alcohol to women in countries where they haven't traditionally drunk alcohol. Well, the alcohol companies have social scientists who are looking at their own research to try and promote the drinks better. Absolutely, and they'll be much better funded than we are. (laughs) Earlier in the year, we reached the first anniversary of the introduction of minimum unit pricing in Scotland. Tell us, if if I'd never heard of it before, what is minimum unit pricing? Well, we know from worldwide evidence of W. HO, the World Health Organisation, that the best ways to reduce alcohol harm are to increase price, reduce marketing and reduce availability. So the fir- to minimum unit pricing really focuses on the first bit, the, the, the focus on price here. So the, f- the focus of minimum unit pricing is really to target cheap, high-strength products which are consumed by the heaviest drinkers. So what's that sort of stuff? So the people, the, the, the products that will be most affected would be strong cider. Right, like Frosty um, Jacks. Frosty Jacks, yeah. which is, you know, much less visible than it used to be before minimum unit pricing was introduced, and kind of own-brand vodkas. Right. These would be the products that are most affected. People probably won't have seen a huge difference in many other products and so it's really aimed at these heavier drinkers and reducing what they can drink. Now I know you played a part in shaping the Scottish Government's policy in this, can you talk about that? I think that might be putting it a little bit strongly. <laughs> I've definitely been talking to civil servants um, in the Scottish Government about the importance of gender and so what I'm hoping and what I've been arguing for is that when we evaluate minimum unit pricing that there will be attention paid to, well, does changing the price of alcohol impact similarly in men and women or are there differences? I think this is a question we really need to unpack. And minimum unit pricing is going to be one of the best evaluated policies in the world. I mean, written into the legislation is that after five years, the government will have a whole raft of evidence from studies. There's over a dozen studies that will be taking place to look at how changing the price of the cheapest alcohol, the strongest alcohol, has affected the population. I mean, it used to be that you could exceed the recommended low-risk guidelines on £2.50. Now it would cost you £7 to do that. So that's a, as a whole, it's a really important step forward. After 12 months, have we learned anything? 
It's hard to say after 12 months. There'll be a lot of media interest. You know, a year on, what's happened with minimum unit pricing? But good academic research, it takes a while to do it properly. And a lot of studies are still in progress. Um, ours has not yet started. So at this stage, we won't be able to say. Sounds like it's a good thing, though, the way you're describing it. I think the, the public health community and, and researchers as a whole are very positive about it. The, the evidence we have from around the world, it's not quite the same as what Scotland's doing, definitely suggests that this will be pushing us in the right direction. But as researchers, we have to conduct the research rigorously and analyse our data and then see what we find. I know you've got research coming up involving mm-hmm. the MUP. You're speaking with homeless drinkers and street drinkers about how it's affected them. Can you tell me about that? Yes, that's right. Um, we've got a project here at Glasgow Caledonian University led by Professor Laurie Elliott and myself. And while we think that MUP as a whole will be a good thing, what we're concerned about and what we need to study is that will it be good for everybody in Scotland? So there's some vulnerable populations and here we're thinking about homeless people, street drinkers. Some of them may be alcohol dependent. Some of them may not know that minimum unit pricing came in last year. It might have been a complete surprise to them. So what we want to do is talk to homeless people, talk to the professionals that work with them and ask the homeless people, how has it affected you? Have you changed what you're drinking? Have you reduced what you're drinking? How has it affected other people that you know? And also talk to the professionals about how services have been affected. And by doing this, what we're hoping is that if this group do need support, this is something we can go back and say minimum unit pricing may as a whole have been really successful. But what we really need to do is to support this group here in Scotland and also for countries that are thinking about introducing it around the world. This is evidence that we can then pass on. You mentioned at the start of the podcast, you head up the university's substance use and misuse research group. You talk about that. Sure, we've got a a number of different strands of research. I'm obviously very interested in the men, women and drinking, which I've talked about. My colleague, Professor Laurie Elliott, has done quite a lot of work with parents and children. So looking at people who may have drug or alcohol problems and trying to support them through that so that it can positively affect their parenting. We've also got a great team of research students doing work on, for example, women in the criminal justice system and their relationship with alcohol. Other students working on women, alcohol and gambling and looking at the the connections there. Another student looking at alcohol and memory. So it's a really exciting programme of research and a really great group of colleagues to work with. Carol, it's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Craig. I've really enjoyed it. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to the show and I hope you'll join us again soon when we'll be talking to another researcher from GCU. Until then, I've been Craig Telfer and this has been The Common Good Podcast. Music